So what is the point of us spending one more week here in 1 Corinthians 15? We're still looking at the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection for his followers. We're looking at the resurrection as timeless truths for troubled times. But the fact is this, it's so easy to miss the point. Like the guy that shows up late for work and the boss yells at him, you should have been here at 8.30. And the employee misses the point of what his boss is trying to say and asks why. What happened at 8.30? Or like the teenager that's told by his dad, listen, if it's snowing really bad outside and there's a snowplow, just follow the snowplow and you should be all right. So the first time it starts snowing really bad while he's driving and he sees a snowplow and he remembers what his dad has told him. So he follows the snowplow and after about 30 minutes, the snowplow driver is kind of confused and he gets out of his truck and he comes over to him and he says, "Uh, what's going on? And the, the young man explains it to him. And the snowplow driver's response is, well, I'm done with the Walmart parking lot. You're welcome to follow me over to Kroger if you want to, I guess. That new driver missed the point of what his dad had been telling him. So what's the point of our focusing on the Christian's resurrection? With all the reassurance of the resurrection of Jesus and what it means to believers, what is the point of focusing so much on our guarantee of our personal resurrection because of the resurrection of Christ? Well, that point is made in verse 58. And that's where we're going to end up at the end of this message. But let's just preview it here. Verse 58 of chapter 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Recall that these Corinthian believers were being challenged. They were being questioned, Why are you wasting so much time and resources obeying this God? None of it's going to matter in the end. We're just going to be spirits floating around. That was the the Corinthian, the Greek belief. The point of what we've been learning is to help us to stand in trials and to stand against temptations that we face. Those who die in Christ, their labor was not in vain. That's what the Corinthians needed to hear. That's what they were concerned about. And the work of leading someone to the Lord, even on their deathbeds, is anything but being in vain. Their work is not in vain in sharing Christ with others. Today, we're looking at the leaning life. Find help and hope in our life-giving Savior. I want you to walk away from this, knowing that you can find help and hope in our life-giving Savior. You know, it's a cynical statement oftentimes that, that Christ is just a crutch. And I hear that and I think, yep, I'm okay with that. Because you know what? A a crutch is a source or a means of support or assistance that's relied on heavily. And if I'm following Christ as I should, he should be my support. He should be my assistance. I should be relying on him heavily. I mean, Jesus told us this much in John 15, 5, when he said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the psalmist tells us in Psalm 16 too, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We are to be living a leaning life, leaning on God, leaning on Christ. Even if it's, he's described as being a crutch, 
I'm okay with that. So we pick back up in verse 44. Verse 44 provides us with a little bit of kind of a review of what we looked at last time in this passage, where it talks about our physical body and our resurrection body. Speaking of our physical body, it says, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Recall that term sown is referring back to that our body will be sown like a seed that dies so that it can become something new, something more robust, something, something more fruitful. It's a continuation of what it was, just like that seed is becoming a plant, but it's a new and different body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, it continues, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, if you recall, the Greek idea that the Corinthians were immersed in was that we live a natural life in a natural body, and then we're just a disembodied spirit. Our natural body obeys the natural laws. Our natural body is suitable for natural life. But we're told that beyond this natural body, knowing Christ as our Savior, we receive a spiritual body, one that is enabled by God and suitable for a spiritual, eternal life. It is no less a physical glorified body, but it is one that is suitable also for the, a spiritual life with God. Our passage shifts to explaining and describing why it is that we can have a spiritual body. It is because of our spiritual forefather, Jesus. Recall, he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And let's recall, we're talking about those who have died in Christ, those who received Christ as our Savior, those who have recognized that Christ paid for our sins in his death on the cross, and his resurrection was evidence of the fact that he defeated death, and we also can live through him, confessing our need for him and receiving him as our Savior. And verse 46 continues, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Now the following verses explain this verse 46. He's once again landing on the common understanding that the physical comes before the spiritual, just as any person would understand that we live a physical life and then we have, quote-unquote, the afterlife. And he explains that in biblical terms then in verse 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Notice the, the combination of the past tense when referring to our uh, physical connection, our human connection with Adam, and the present tense when referring to our connection with Christ. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. First, I want you to see that the leaning life that you can have is that you can find help in your living Savior. I want to challenge you here. Lean on your life 
life-giving Savior. The first man was a miracle of creation. God formed him from the dust. As we see in the early chapters of Genesis, God breathed into him and passed on life through uh, his breath. And Adam is then able to pass on that life through procreation. But also, because of Adam's sin, he passes on death through sin as well. Christ is described as being the last Adam. And when it describes him as having, he became a life-giving spirit, this isn't meaning he came into existence, but he took the office with his death and his resurrection of being the life-giving person, the life-giving spirit. And this is the importance of this is in his contrast with Adam, not that he became a spirit, He became the giver of the spiritual body, which is what we need in order to be able to fellowship with God for all of eternity. These same principles are referred to in Romans 5, where you can read in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And verse 15 continues, But the free gift... Speaking of the the grace of the gospel, is not like the trespass which Adam committed. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the, the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Life, physical life, is passed on to us by our connection with Adam. But so is death because of sin. And spiritual life is passed on to us through Christ. And it is abounding to any who can accept the gospel for themselves. And also eternal spiritual life in a glorified body is a part of what we receive through Christ. You you may have experienced this that a lot of the friendships that you can have can be with someone who's a giver or someone who's a taker. Some friends can be full of life, but also they can be full of themselves. And kind of like, you know, a parasite is living, but it's not life-giving. Not to call people parasites, but there are people that just kind of suck life out of you. There's a big difference between being just a living being and a life-giving spirit, as Jesus is referred to. When he's called the last Adam, it's basically saying, this is it, folks. He's the one. There is no Savior coming after Jesus. If you notice, the origin of Jesus and Adam are contrasted here. Adam is from the dust, and Jesus is from heaven. Adam is associated with the dust, and Jesus is associated with heaven. Adam, he might be a man's man, but Jesus Christ is the God-man. And that is what we need in order to receive salvation and eternal life the work, the life-giving work of the God-man. Well, we originate from Adam. We are associated with Adam, but we have the opportunity to switch who we identify with. We all are born bearing the image of the man of dust, bearing the image of Adam, that first created man. But we have the opportunity to identify, to bear the image of Jesus Rest assured that just as you could look at another person and say, that's a human, we will resemble Christ in some way. We will bear his image. Lean on your life 
life-giving Savior. To compare a living being to Jesus as being life-giving is like comparing the power of a battery with the power of the sun. To be born into Adam's family is like being born with a battery. And that battery, maybe it's going to last 70, 80 years. But to be born into Christ's family, because it's Christ. That's like being born with the ability to be powered by Christ, like solar panels that are powered by the sun. If you are to believe what seems too good to be true, you must lean on Jesus. If you are to be able to give life to others, you must lean on him. Remember what he said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you often find yourself needing power from Jesus, the life giver? If your answer is no, is it possible that it's because you're not seeking to accomplish anything that has any eternal significance, that needs his power? I hope that we're all seeking to see happen what only God can make happen. It requires Christ's power. It requires Christ's life-giving ability. Well, moving on to verses 50 through 58, there's kind of a dilemma that the Corinthian church had on their mind. Who is in the right situation? Is it those who knew Christ as their Savior but they yet died? Or is it those who are still living and waiting for Christ? And to this question, verses 50 through 58 speak. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 50 describes the universal problem for both the living saints and what he calls the sleeping saints, those who have already passed on. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are still alive still need to be changed. And also, nor does the perishable inherit what is imperishable. Those who have already died and are obviously perishable, their bodies are wasting away. They cannot become imperishable without being changed dramatically. So these verses are dealing with this universal problem of both the living and the sleeping saints, if you will. So we continue on in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. By living the leaning life, leaning on Christ, you can find hope in your living Savior. So I challenge you secondly here, lean into your life-bringing Savior. What I mean by leaning into 
your life-bringing Savior, to lean into something means to press into it, to, to press against someone or something. It can also mean to be in maybe a tough situation and to embrace the situation or to embrace something in order to grow from what it has to give. We have the opportunity to lean into Christ now as we wait for him to come and to change us. As I mentioned, the universal problem here is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And verses 51 through 53 gives us God's universal solution for both of them. First of all, his solution is that he will bring a changed body for all saints. Living saints are going to be changed. This is what he means when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And when the New Testament is talking about a mystery, it's not talking about something that is still hidden. It's talking about something that had been hidden, particularly through the Old Testament times. But now, as it is being expanded on in this passage, the mystery is being opened up and explained. And the mystery that others did not understand before it's being explained here is that we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I've heard of some church nurseries having some fun with verse 51, uh, making it their policy that they shall not all sleep, but they will all be changed. But this is talking about the fact that even believers that are alive when Christ returns to rapture his saints— we will be changed miraculously, and it's going to happen so quickly. It describes it as being in a moment. This comes from the same word that we get our word, atom. The word atom itself means smallest particle. It's talking about the smallest amount of time. Maybe somebody would call it a nanosecond. It's described as being in the twinkling of an eye. That means the time it takes to cast a glance or to flutter the eyelid, meaning it's faster than a blink. It's, it's what comes before at the blink of an eye. The ESV study notes say this, Christians who are alive at the time of the resurrection will be transformed so that their bodies become spiritual and immortal, like the bodies of those who are resurrected from the dead. So living saints will be changed, and those sleeping saints were also going to be changed. They're going to be raised with imperishable bodies. That's why he says, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. All of us will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You might remember the old movie about aliens coming from outer space called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Well, this is talking about the invasion of the body bringers. Both those who are living, those who have trusted Christ and are living, and those who have trusted Christ and are dead will be brought new glorified bodies, just as we've been talking about during these weeks. We're being reassured here. Don't worry. He will have one for all of his saints. You know, there's a number of locations in the New Testament that flow out of the teachings that flow out of this concern about the Christian community. 
not just what happens to us after we die, but also what sort of community will we have after Christ returns. This is what the Apostle Paul is also writing about in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying, don't worry, they're not going to be left in their grave. And then he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now understand, those who have died in Christ, they are with him from the moment of their death. This is where they will receive their glorified bodies. But I love this statement in verse 17, and this is what I think speaks to the question of what will our community be? Then we who are alive, who are left, meaning those of us who have not yet died when Christ returns and raptures his saints, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Understand when he says, we will be caught up together with them, that idea of being caught up together references community. It references the relationship that we will have together with the Lord. And then that speaks also into this when he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will be with one another together with the Lord for eternity. So God has solved our greatest dilemma. Living saints and sleeping saints will be changed from perishable bodies to imperishable bodies. And this takes place when God raptures his people to be with him for eternity. And both sleeping saints and living saints, we're all going to be changed and we're going to be together. So please lean into your life-bringing Savior. Rest assured, he is bringing a changed body for all the saints. But also take heart in the fact that he's bringing victory over death. This is what he means starting in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, death will be powerless. And then he quotes here from Isaiah, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is, is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand again that we're talking about those who have received Christ as our Savior. Whether we have died or whether we are alive when Christ returns. But the vast majority of the people that have walked the earth and walk the earth today, they will still be resurrected, but not so that Jesus can give them life eternally. They will be resurrected unto judgment, that great white throne of judgment that we spoke about weeks ago. And there is a preacher that's preaching to them behind every ache and pain and doctor's visit, and also preaching to them through this virus that we are experiencing as a world. Let me read for you an old writing called 
the preacher of the old school. And this preacher, just to let you know that is being described, is death itself. It says, there is one preacher left of the old school. And he speaks today as loudly and as clearly as ever. He is not a popular preacher, though the world is his parish. And he travels over every part of the globe and speaks in every language under the sun. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. You may meet him in the inner cities or find him moving in the very high circles of society. He preaches to people of every religion and of no religion. And whatever text he may have, the substance of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher. He often stirs feelings which no other preacher could reach. He brings tears into eyes that are little used to weep. He addresses himself to the intellect, the conscience, and the hearts of his hearers. His arguments none have been able to refute. There is no conscience on earth that has not at some time feared his presence. Nor is there any heart that has remained wholly unmoved by the force of his weighty appeals. Most people hate him, but in one way or another, he makes everybody hear him. He is neither refined nor polite. Indeed, he often interrupts the public arrangements and breaks in rudely upon the private enjoyments of life. He lurks about the shadows of the theater and nightclub. His shadows fall sometimes on the card table. He frequents the shop, the office, and the factory. He has a master key that gives him access to the most secluded chamber. He appears in the midst of legislatures and the fashionably religious assemblies. Neither the villa, the mansion, nor the palace daunt him by their greatness, and no court or street is mean enough to escape his notice. His name is death. Physical death is the unavoidable enemy. But one day there will be no more death when death itself is judged along with those unbelievers. As we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But before then, death will be defeated like a captive that's put on a leash, hindered from wreaking havoc on God's saints. And for followers of Christ, death is defeated when we put on the imperishable body, when we put on immortality. This points to the truth that your body is not the real you. It is only clothing. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 refers to when Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, describing our body as something that just covers us, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Recall the disembodied spirits that the Corinthians tended to believe in. We will not be found naked. We will not be disembodied spirits. And it explains it further in verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
Notice in our verses in 1 Corinthians 15, death will be swallowed up. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, it describes that we will be swallowed up by life when we put on the imperishable body, when we put on immortality. So again, the question of the Corinthians is this, will those saints who are alive when Christ returns, will, will we have to die? No. Their life-giving, death-defeating Savior will have arrived, and death will be swallowed up in victory. This points to the, a complete defeat of death. Believers will not have a hint of death found in our bodies, and death will not even come into the equation. As one writer says, death is a malignant adversary torturing people, but Christ has drawn its sting, and it is harmless to those who are in him. I love these questions. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Literally, the verses are taunting death. They're saying, na-na-na-na-boo-boo, you can't sting me. Like a scorpion that's lost its stinger or a snake that's been defanged, we will not fear it any longer. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. He's not saying, thanks be to God who gives us the power to obey the law and earn his friendship. God gives victory by grace, not through legalism. The moral law of God would not justify us, but would rather point out our sin. And why don't we have to die? Because Jesus took care of our sin, and he died for it. Why aren't we judged as sinners? Because Jesus fulfilled the law and lends us, gives us his righteousness for eternity. I read about a man recently, a 38-year-old man, who became famous for a very unfortunate reason. It was in 1993, and a Toronto lawyer named Gary Hoy was giving a tour of his law office to some law students. He'd always been impressed with the building's shatterproof windows, and one of his favorite demonstrations was lunging against the window with his shoulder. On this day that, unfortunately, these law students were standing there watching, he rammed into the window once with his shoulder, and maybe because he enjoyed the reaction that they had, he decided to do it a second time. This time, the window gave way, and Gary Hoy became famous for plunging himself down 24 stories, and that year he received the Darwin Award for his senseless death. But you know, what is so much more senseless is that people are dying an eternal death when death itself will be defeated. We are to apply this truth by taking courage and also by taking the truth to those who are still endangered by an eternal death. This brings us back to verse 58. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your issue might not be about being afraid or being apathetic about your choices. Your issue might be that you're not sure that eternal matters are worth your effort. Is it all just a waste of time? If I'm saved by God's grace and my eternal destiny is secure, why should I care? During this time of isolation, days can feel like they're just one after another, empty and vain. But I want to tell you, any work that you do, any effort that you make, 
any prayers that you pray to allow God to visit his grace on your neighbor, on your family member, on your friend, your work is not in vain. It is not empty. It is not meaningless. Because the tomb isn't empty, your faith is not empty. And rather than our message being empty, our message, the gospel, is full of importance. Rather than our faith being empty, our faith is the very thing that others need. Rather than your hard work to share the gospel being empty, it is the fullest and most fulfilling thing that you can be doing. And I want to challenge you to do whatever you can to share the gospel with others, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Dear Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity during these days when people feel like, some feel like death is on their doorstep waiting for them if they were to walk outside. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to have the words to say, to answer those fears with the truth of your gospel. And I pray, Lord God, that my friends here will be encouraged to lean on their life-giving Savior and to lean into that future, the future coming of their life-bringing Savior. And I pray, Lord God, that we will live today with reckless abandonment for what is eternal. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.